I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending August 30th. Homomorphic encryption. It's, well, what it is is that it's, um, it's, what it is is it's really complicated. Stick around, we'll explain it all. Chinese memory chip supplier GigaDevices just made a huge splash in China, introducing a line of RISC-V microcontrollers. The company claims they're the first general-purpose RISC-V MCUs ever. We'll discuss why these MCUs are significant. Ultra-wideband is back, this time with some brand new capabilities. NXP and Volkswagen collaborated on a clever anti-theft technique for cars that makes use of the new ultra-wideband. Today, we've got a discussion with NXP CTL Lars Rieger and Mike Roda of Volkswagen as they discuss the new anti-theft approach and also where they plan to take ultra-wideband next. So ultra-wideband is is very attractive because what we can use is the capability of ultra-wideband to measure the so-called time of flight. So if you have a key in your pocket and you're approaching your car, the car can exactly measure the traveling time of a signal between the key and the car and therefore determine how far away you are. As it is using the speed of light, you cannot cheat it. We'll get back to Lars Rieger and ultra-wideband technology later in the podcast. Today, if a company wants to crunch a lot of data, it has two basic choices. The first is that it can build its own compute center and process the data itself. The downside of that is that building and maintaining your own compute center is expensive. The alternative is to ship its data to a commercial data processing center. The downside of that is that it's risky. Companies can encrypt their data so that it's safe in transit, But when it reaches its destination and is decrypted for processing, it's vulnerable. The best of both worlds would be if a company could encrypt its data, ship it off to a data center where it stays encrypted. Of course, that's ridiculous because no one can actually process encrypted data. Except soon, maybe you will be able to. Homomorphic encryption is a technology that enables data to be processed while still encrypted. It seems impossible, but it just might work. EE Times editor Sally Ward-Foxton wrote the story. International editor Junko Yoshida asked her about it. So, Sally, what exactly is homomorphic encryption? Please explain. It's an encryption scheme, which means you can do addition and multiplication of plain text while manipulating only the ciphertext. That is, if we input our encrypted data, then run a mathematical algorithm on it, we get an output data set. If we decrypt the output data set, we get the same result as if we had run the algorithm on the unencrypted data. So basically, it's a way of encrypting data that means you can process that data, you can run algorithms on it without decrypting it. It's a powerful idea in cryptography terms because for a traditional encryption scheme, if you want to use that encrypted data in any way, you have to decrypt it. And as soon as you decrypt it, that's a vulnerability. The first fully homomorphic encryption scheme was invented in 2009 by Craig Gentry at IBM, and he received the MacArthur Genius Grant for his work. Even then, though, while it was theoretically possible, it wasn't really usable because it slowed the computing time down by a factor of millions or trillions. Today, advanced research has brought that down to between a factor of 10 and a factor of 100 slower than for unencrypted data. 
So after a decade of research, we're finally getting to the stage where this encryption scheme is moving out of the purely academic domain and becoming practical in the commercial domain. You said in your story that homomorphic encryption's implication for AI is tremendous. Why is that? In what ways? I think homomorphic encryption is a really big deal for AI because training machine learning models requires so much compute, it's almost always done remotely in the cloud. We're only starting to see the implications of data privacy concerns on data that's being used in this way. Homomorphic encryption means we can realize the potential of AI and machine learning technology, even in applications where the data is sensitive. To give you an example, a classic example is training image recognition models that look at medical scan images. Obviously, if you're using real patient data, it has to be kept private. Let's say we're investigating rare diseases. Maybe there's only 10 cases of this disease in this country per year. It's hard to train an AI system with only 10 data points. But if we use homomorphic encryption, we can potentially pool patient data from different hospitals or different countries, and all of a sudden you've got a much bigger body of data that you can train your AI model on and hopefully find a cure for this disease or find out what causes it. Today, if you want to ensure absolute data privacy, the only way is to keep all data on the edge device, uh, do inference at the edge, or use a technique like federated learning, which is where incremental training is done at the edge. But again, it's about keeping the data local. Uh, but some models are so advanced, so big, they can't practically be computed on edge devices. You need to use the cloud. And this encryption scheme will allow this even for the most sensitive data. I get homomorphic encryption is useful if anyone wants to pull data without actually sharing data. But here's the thing that's bugging me, and I'm probably missing that point here, uh, so if so, you must correct me. Once data is sent to some remote data centers for training, how could anyone train that encrypted data without decrypting it? Yeah, it sounds like it shouldn't be possible, right? Uh, but in theory, training an AI model means running an algorithm on some data, looking at the results, and then we adjust the weights in the model accordingly. Remember, the algorithm's looking for patterns in the training data called features and using them to predict whether the data matches the target result. It's a mathematical operation on data, albeit on a huge scale. So if the result still has a meaningful relationship with the input data, it should still work. What sort of industry support or interest is homomorphic encryption getting these days from the community? Some of the industry's biggest names have solutions for this. Intel has a solution called HE Transformer and there's Microsoft SEAL, S-E-A-L. Although these solutions are out there and many are open source, homomorphic encryption is really still only fully understood by a relatively small community of academics and cryptography specialists. So there's a consortium to develop a standard for it to help spread the word. You can find them at homomorphicencryption.org. There are, of course, other companies working on commercial solutions. I spoke to encryption expert Kurt Roloff. He spent the last decade working on this technology for DARPA and is now CTO of Duality Technologies. Their product is commercial middleware that allows companies to do data science to run analytics on encrypted data. One of the key industries that Kurt Roloff talked about was finance. If you're a fintech, a financial technology startup, your algorithm, your model is your IP. Say you want to demonstrate that model to a potential customer, which might be a bank. The bank can't share their data, and the fintech doesn't want to share their model. Models can also be encrypted, by the way. So homomorphic encryption gets around that problem. 
As we start to use AI in every industry and we start to appreciate all the issues relating to AI and data privacy that are still emerging, this technology is going to be very important going forward, I think. Look for Sally's story on homomorphic encryption. It's called The Holy Grail of Encryption Could Be a Game Changer for AI. It's on the website. Giga devices previously made its own pin-compatible versions of ARM-based microcontrollers produced by ST Microelectronics. Last week, it made a huge splash in China by introducing new versions of many of those same microcontrollers, only these are not based on ARM, they're based on open-source RISC-V technology. These microcontrollers are among the first RISC-V-based products in China. And Giga Devices claims they're the first general-purpose RISC-V microcontrollers in the world. EE Times China editor Alumi Huang was at the event. Junko Yoshida cut up with Alumi's colleague Echo Zhao to get more on Giga Devices. Hi, Echo. How are you today? Good. I'm perfect. <laughs> perfect. Okay. So we want to talk about Giga Device today. Um, when I first met the company CEO Yi Mingzhu. Mm. Uh, in 2012 in Beijing, mm. I remember Giga Device was chasing NOR flash memory market. Mm. What business are they in today? Uh, yes, Giga Device uh, started from NOR flash, and they are very successful on it. And then MCU, and then they acquired a company called Silid uh, to get in the sensor market. I believe Giga Device is in the pin-to-pin compatible SD microelectronics MCU business. Mm. When did they get into the MCU market and how significant of the MCU market is within Giga Device? Well, I, I think it started the uh, MCU business about seven or two or eight years ago. And according to last year's uh, annual report, uh-huh. uh, MCU account for 18% of their total revenue. I see. Mm. So MCU is kind of their way to expand the business, right? Right, right. All right. Obviously, with this announcement last week, they are getting into the Risks 5 business, but mm. I don't believe Giga Device is the only company in China doing Risk 5, right? So mm. there are some other players, I think. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that, Echo. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, many companies are very interested in Risk Five in China, but few of them have commercial products. Okay. Uh, some well-known IP companies like uh, CSKY, uh, now Pintogu, right, and uh, Nuclei, who provide Risk Five IP cores for Giga Devices uh, MCU. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some AI chips from. Uh, Huami Technology and Revel, and they are already in the market. So those are the two companies, okay. But yes, there's but, no other... Uh, yes, the, but the, for the general purpose MCU, Giga Device is the first company who launched RISC-V-based uh, MCU chips. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. Giga Device didn't just announce their new RISC-V MCU, mm-hmm. but they actually held a big event, big R. Risk Five event in Beijing last week. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Uh, okay, our reporter Ilumi was on site. Yeah. Uh, the event was not only for media but also for engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Illumi mentioned to me there were hundreds of uh, system engineers there, and there were lots of RISC-V MCU-based demos in there, uh, as if to see, huh, it's uh, very easy to transplant your design to RISC-V MCU. Giga Device claims that they made a migration path from ARM to RISC-V easy. Here's what Eric Jin, Product Marketing Director of MCU Business Unit of Giga Device, told us earlier today. Yes, uh, for, uh, because many customers uh, use our ARM MCUs, so we set up a fast channel from the ARM MCUs to uh, migrate to the RISC-V MCUs. So the, all the MCU series is pin-to-pin compatible, it's part number compatible and software compatible. So the users can easily migrate from ARM MCUs to RISC-V MCUs, and we are the first one of the very compatible advantage. So the customer can easily to develop our MCUs. But a big question for everybody is this, I think. If, for example, if I were an IoT system designer in China today, why would I ever want to switch to RISC-V-based system? I'm doing just fine with ARM-based MCU system. So Echo and I asked Giga Devices Eric about his take on this earlier today. He didn't exactly answer our question, but here's what he said. It depends on our the MCU definition and the features. And now we released the first 14 pan numbers is mainstream line. So we also have planned to release the low cost entry level line and high performance line. So Echo, what's your take on this? Well, well if you want to entice engineers, Performance and cost is uh, not enough. It should be very easy for them to transplant their design to RISC-V-based MCU. Some people uh, are worried about the ecosystem, but I think it's lucky that no single company can choose the entire IoT market. IoT is a very fragmented market, so uh, ecosystem support is uh, not a big issue, I think. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. So your point is that uh, for IT, IoT market, the size of the ecosystem probably doesn't matter that much. Uh, a lot of experts think so too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's my take to wrap this up. <clears throat> Giga Device, in my opinion, became already very successful with its MCU business because they made their products pin-to-pin compatible with SD microelectronics MCUs. And of, of course, their offering was cheaper than SDs, right? So that was their playbook. I think Giga Device is using the same playbook here again. They, are want, they want to make their RISC-V products pin-to-pin compatible with ARM-based MCUs. So we'll see if Giga Device can use the same strategy twice and succeed again. And here's one more take on this story. With the U.S. blocking the sale of Western technology to China, that leaves many Chinese manufacturers in a bind. Among them are the ones that have been developing products for the Internet of Things, companies that have already chosen to use popular microcontrollers based on ARM, which they're now barred from using. What to do? This is where the easy migration path that Eric Jin referred to comes in. Chinese OEMs who are using ARM-based microcontrollers can quickly adopt the pin-compatible RISC-V-based replacements 
from Giga Devices. The RISC-V MCUs are an alternative for anyone who cannot use ARM or does not want to. The English translation of the original story by Alumi Wang in EE Times China is on our website. It's called Giga Device Intros General Purpose RISC-V MCUs. You know those wireless fobs that allow you to lock and unlock your car? Clever thieves have figured out they, they could use a wireless relay to bridge a fob to a vehicle. It's referred to as relay theft. Vehicle owners never know what happened. NXP and Volkswagen tried to find a way to stop relay theft, and it occurred to them they could use the new ultra-wideband. The original ultra-wideband was a wireless communication system that briefly attracted a great deal of interest many years ago, but ultimately wasn't widely adopted. The technology was recently resuscitated with a new twist. It now comes with range-finding. Now, range-finding enables a system based on the new ultra-wideband to figure out where the user is and how far away. NXP and Volkswagen figured they could make wireless fobs for VW vehicles that incorporate ultra-wideband range-finding to combat relay theft. Relay or no, the car can determine if the fob is too far away, and if it is, the car will decline to unlock itself. European editor Nitin Dahad caught up with NXP Chief Technology Officer Lars Rieger and Mike Rota, the head of body electronics at Volkswagen, and asked them about the anti-theft technology and where the two companies intend to take ultra-wideband next. I'm here with Lars Rieger from NXP and Mike Roder from Volkswagen in Hamburg. So I'll start with you, Lars. Um, tell me, uh, what is it you're announcing here this week? Uh, Nitin, what we are announcing is basically that we are working very closely with Volkswagen on uh, uh, launching new use cases with ultra-wideband technology. This ultra-wideband technology we are using for super secure, super accurate positioning, super efficient system. And with that, what we try to do is we try to replace the keys that you're carrying in your pocket. And of course, also one of the big keys, uh, we try to make more efficient and more secure, which is basically your car key. And Volkswagen is showing new use cases around the car key of the future there and how basically the car can react to this um, uh, accurate positioning. Thank you. And, and I understand, Mike, uh, you'll be launching a brand new concept car in Frankfurt uh, around this. Is that right? There will be launched brand new car within Frankfurt, which will also bring the might be the first car using ultra wideband technology, in order to move a very big step forward regarding uh, to protect the car against theft. Thank you, and Lars, uh, tell me why ultra wideband? I mean, we we've had all kinds of technologies, and you talked about motion sensors. Can you just very briefly tell me why ultra wideband and why now? Yeah, so ultra-wideband is, is a, a very attractive because what we can use is the capability of ultra-wideband to measure the so-called time of flight. So if you have a key in your pocket and you're approaching your car, the car can exactly measure the traveling time of a signal between the key and the car and therefore determine how far away you are. As it is using the speed of light, you cannot cheat it. So there is other mechanisms how to do it in the past, but this one is the most robust uh, and, and the most uncheatable system that we know so far. And with that, of course, it's super attractive for us because if you want to, to manage your um, expensive assets or your even dangerous 
assets. So your heavy assets, uh, cars, trailers, uh, all of that, then of course you have to super, super, super rely on your technology and you have to be absolutely sure that no functional safety hazards are happening and, and no hacking is happening. Thank you. And, and the last question. So what do you see as a future for ultra-wideband? I think you talked about uh, the on-demand economy and, uh, and where yeah, it's going next. Yeah, so basically what we are seeing, Nitin, is uh, outside of the automotive uh, ecosystem, we are expecting 75 billion smart connected devices to be on that planet in 2025. This is, just to have it in mind, 10 times the world population we will have in smart connected devices. Now, I have to interact with all these smart connected devices in a, in a pretty easy way. And how can I do this? Well, by telling these devices who I am in an uncheatable way and where I am by the centimeter. And then these devices can start reacting to me, adjusting the environment to my preferences without me taking manual action. So 20 years. Using AI. Uh, using AI, for example, basically system cleverness uh, in the widest sense. Mm. But 20 years ago, we were doing all of this manually. I was switching on my central heating and then I got it warm uh, in the house uh, an hour later. Today, I can press a button on my mobile phone and say, hey, heat up the house and I will be home in half an hour. And the next thing would be that my house knows that Lars is landing at the airport and will be home. And by the way, the family members are, are gone on vacation still. And uh, so it can pre-adjust, so ahead of demand, knowing what I will need. Nitten's story is called Volkswagen and NXP show first car using UWB to combat relay theft. It's on the website eetimes.com. We know you've been waiting eagerly for your dose of technology history. Let's go back to August 29th, 1831. A former bookbinder's apprentice by the name of Michael Faraday had long before sealed his place in technological history by discovering electromagnetic rotation, the basic principle underlying the electric motor. Wondering if an electric current passing through one conductor could induce an electric current in a neighboring conductor, in 1831, Faraday set up an experiment using a six-inch diameter iron ring around which were wound five coils of copper wire. One coil was connected to a voltaic pile and another to a galvanometer. It was an induction cell, essentially the first electrical transformer. According to the American Physical Society, on August 29th, he fired it up and demonstrated the principle of induction. Also on August 29th, this time in 2003, Nicholas Zenstrom and Janusz Fries started Skype. On August 30th, 1982, a copyright was issued to V.A. Shiva Ayadurai for a computer program he called Email, short for Electronic Mail. Ayadurai, who was a teen when he began writing the program in 1978, may or may not have invented email, but he certainly named it. On August 28, in 1845, Scientific American magazine published its very first issue. The lead item was about improved railroad cars. The front page noted newly awarded patents, and it included a whimsical poem about the properties of attraction. Attraction is a curious power that none can understand. Its influence is everywhere, in water, air, and land. It keeps the earth compact 
and tight, as though strong bolts were through it. And what is more mysterious yet, it binds us mortals to it. Yeah, don't ever say we didn't try to culture y'all. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending August 30th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to. This podcast can be found on our website, on Blueberry, Spotify, iTunes, and elsewhere. That's it for this week. We'll see you in September with a new episode of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santos.